Chapter 5 starts with the Beatitudes. And then there's um, some language there talking about um, us and our walks here on earth. And then when you get to verse 21, there's another section. And that section 21 to the end of the chapter, 48, is, is one subject. And then Jesus preaches that one subject. He uses six illustrations to get that subject across. If you'll notice, everyone starts with a phrase, something similar to this. You have heard of the old time it's said. Okay. And then he'll quote some kind of passage or some law or commandment from the Old Testament. And then immediately after, it'll say, but I say. There's six of those. What Jesus is doing is, is really pretty brassy. If you think about what he's saying, he's not changing the Old Testament. God's laws don't change. But what he's saying, he says, your priests and your teachers have taught you this way all your life. And I am going to give you the correct interpretation. Now, you think, wow, if I was a priest or uh, an elder in the church and the Jewish, and I heard this young 30-year-old minister starting to preach that way, I'd be taken back a little bit. Well, I'm going to read this section of Scripture, but that's exactly what he's doing. Now, let me try to give you an overview of where we're headed and where we're going. I don't think I'll get through with this today. It's a big subject of what I want to get across. But one of the things I want you to notice is that when you're talking about sin, sin can show up in your hands, in your feet, in your eyes, in your mouth. Okay, And what Jesus is basically trying to say is, wait a second, before it ends up in your hands, in your feet, in your eyes, in your mouth, something sin has been festering in your heart, in your mind for a while before it manifests itself in your hands, in your feet, in your actions. And what his lesson is, is instead of getting a bunch of rules that keep it going from your heart to your hands, what if we can get it before it takes root in the heart? And that's what the lesson is. Now, here's my dilemma as a pastor. How do you teach this lesson and do it in a way where, well, okay, I want to keep it from going to my hands, so we create a bunch of rules so it doesn't jump from A to B. But how do I do that so it never plants here where I'm just not creating another set of rules, right? So where I'm really, if, if I just come up with a bunch of rules to not get it in my heart, in my mind, sure, I've cut it off a little earlier, but I'm still a legalist. I'm just trading one set of rules for another. So, so someone comes to me and says, I want to know about God. I've been to church as a little boy or a little girl, and it's just I just knew it would be in a bunch of rules. I said, well, it's, you're just not, Jesus died for you, and it's just, he took care of all that. No one could keep all the rules. So what do I have to do? Well, it's all about the relationship. Well, how do I get the relationship? Well, you pray and you read the word and you go to church. Well, that's just a bunch of rules, right? Yes, isn't it? And this is what I this is what I liken it to. 
I'm going to embarrass myself, but I'm going to talk about my relationship with my wife. And, and I want to grow and mature and enrich my relationship with my wife. And I know there's certain things that she really, really likes. She likes time set aside for us to talk. She likes when I make definite plans and she can look forward to it. These are all my failures, okay? I'm, I'm sharing all this. And she likes when I set time aside and it's a dedicated to her and only her, right? So I start working in that way. Now, in the beginning, because it's something that doesn't come natural to me, it's kind of like rules, isn't it? Yes. But I'm not doing it to get anything. I'm doing those things because I love her and I know that's what it takes to enrich the relationship. So it's not rule driven, but it's a discipline for me to try to enrich the relationship. Well, that's kind of like the same thing with God. I hope that makes a little bit sense. Let me, let me give you one more example and then I'll read this passage. <clears throat> Has anyone ever driven a postal truck? Okay. The driver, the driver, the steering wheel's on the right side of the car, right? And when you drive one, it is the hardest thing in the world to do because your automatic pilot says drive with your body on the left side of the road. And you're in a vehicle that if you drive with your body on the left side of the road, the left side of the car is going to be across the yellow line. You're going to get a wreck. So as you're drawing, you're constantly telling yourself, stay to the right, stay to the right, stay to the right, stay to the right, because it's a conscious effort. And as soon as you relax a little bit, you're going to be in trouble. Does that make sense? And then hopefully after a period of time, it'll become a habit. Right, right? So in essence, to change, because, because I'm so grooved into thinking, my body's got to be near the left side. That oil slick that's right in the middle, that's, that's where my right foot goes with the, skirt, the, the, the pedal, right? That's what I'm aiming for. But I can't do it that way. i got to do it with my left foot on that oil slick. And I've got to tell myself to do it because I've got a behavior I've been so accustomed to. Well, that's what it is like when you come and you get to know Jesus Christ. We are an automatic pilot. We're used to thinking and acting like the world. And all of a sudden we realize we don't want to do that anymore and we've got to force ourselves and, and our default is to drive on the left side of the road or the left half column on the right side of the road. You know what I'm saying, right? Versus the other side. Now back where, where we live in the part of Roanoke County, it's so funny, those mailmen have to drive their own vehicles. So what I see is I can see a guy sitting in the passenger seat with his left hand on the wheel, his left foot on the gas, putting stuff out the window like that, and I think he's going to kill me or someone or someone else, right? So I don't want to do that kind of craziness, right? So let's read this passage, and, and I'm, not, I'm not after the details here. I want to get the big picture. How, how do we not focus on the letter of the law, but focus on the spirit of the law without becoming a legalist about spiritual things? It's, it's hard. It's really hard. And it's hard to explain that, not only to, to, to people that have never been raised in church, it's even hard to explain that to, to my own children, to, to, to the high school students I used to teach. What's a primitive Baptist, Mr. Painter? 
I grew up a regular Baptist, or I grew up a Methodist, or I grew up a Presbyterian. Oh, I see, you're just saying swapping these rules for this rule. Well, that's not what religion is. But that's what we make it sometimes, and even when we try not to, that's the way it comes across. So that's kind of this thing I've been wrestling with, okay? So let me read the passage to you. <clears throat> and um, let me start at verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka or Reka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thou thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there the gift before the altar and go the way. First be reconciled to the brother and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt be no means come out of thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. In other words, okay, before you actually kill, literally kill someone, pull the trigger. However, the, however the, 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 that is, somewhere before it got there, some anger and hatred had to disturb in your heart. And what Jesus Christ is saying is before it gets that far, try to quench that. Well, how do I quench that? Well, one of the ways you quench it is you try to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, how do you do that? How do you develop a relationship with anyone? You communicate with them. The way he talks to us is through his word. The way we talk to him is through prayer. And you try to be around him. You go to a place where he's worshipped. You go to a place where people have similar affections. So you know what you have to do? You got to read your Bible. You got to pray. And you got to go to church. Brother Dolph, that's just a bunch of rules. Right? Well, yes and no. Let's keep on going. Okay? Verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto thou, you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her and hath committed adultery with her already in his heart, and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should be harsh, and not the whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it before thee. And I'm going to stop right there for a second. Okay. So again, it's the same principle. Okay. I haven't actually touched a woman. I haven't taken her on a date. I haven't done anything physical to her. But the fact that I'm starting to look... I'm letting something fester in my heart before my body can act it out. And God, Jesus is saying, the fact is you let it fester in your heart before your body goes, you're already guilty. Well, how do I not let it fester in my heart? Well, we go through the same thing. You develop a good relationship with Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You pray, you read his word, you go to church, you worship. Another set of rules. Then we come down here. To verse uh, 31. 
It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her is divorce, is divorce committeth adultery. Now, here's, here's one where I'm going to give you what I think is an illustration of what Jesus is going through. This, sound, this is going to sound absolutely bold. The religious world. I, okay, I'm going to tell you flat out. I absolutely 100% disagree with the religious world on this, their interpretation. I disagree with Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, most in Bible interpretations, and most primitive Baptist preachers. I don't think the way that you're thinking, whoa, that sounds pretty bold, Dolph, Brother Dolph. And I said, yeah, but we think that's exactly what Jesus did. Listen to this. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 2. That's an Old Testament commandment that says, if I were to get married, and after I was married, I found out that she was not a virgin, I could give her a bill of divorcement, she could go off, and get remarried, and it wouldn't be adultery. Jesus is not giving us the loophole to get out of New Testament marriage. What he's doing is he's talking about an indiscretion that happened before marriage, not adultery in marriage, an indiscretion before marriage. And matter of fact, what he's teaching is, if your wife commits adultery, forgive her. Because if you don't forgive her, she's going to go out and remarry and commit more adultery. It's right the opposite. You're saying, what makes you so smart? Well, nothing makes me so smart. I got put in a case where I had to look at divorce to the nth degree in the church I pastored down in Georgia. And I looked at these things, and to me, it just didn't make sense. Jesus is talking about the letter of law, the spirit of the law. He's giving six illustrations and right in the middle, he gives us the technicalities of divorce and remarriage. No, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing, he's telling these people, forgive your wife no matter what it is. That's what he's saying there. And he says, the only time you have an out is if there was an indiscretion before marriage. That's the only one most, he's, he's not changing the law whatsoever. And I'd be happy to talk with you that. But, but that's what Jesus Christ, you know, I'm, I'm looking, you're thinking, Brother Dolph, I've never heard that before. That's okay. Read it, go back, read Deuteronomy 24, go back and read what Jesus is saying, go read Matthew 19, and you'll say, wow, it fits like a glove in a hand. That's what he's teaching. And it's consistent with the whole chapter. But that's what Jesus was doing with every single one of these commands. And you know what happened at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Read the last two verses in chapter seven. You know what it says? And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So he's coming off and he's saying, you know what? Your prior teachers taught you all that. They gave you wrong stuff. I'm gonna give you the right stuff. Those teachers had to be getting angry. And then the people are going, Wow, this guy's got authority, unlike you all. No wonder why they wanted to kill him, right? So when we go to this, 
we're looking at him, he's being really, really bold. Okay, let's 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 go on. Let's go to the third one, the fourth one, verse 33. It says, Again ye have heard it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, that but thou shalt perform thy the Lord thine oaths. And basically, this is the thing where it says, Let your yea be yea. You know, if you live your life so that you're always speaking true, you never have to make an oath. Amen? They used to in the courts say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? You would never have to say that because your word was true. Amen? Yeah. That's what we have. So, you never, one thing about telling the truth you never have to remember your lies. It's a lot of work to remember your lies. I know I tried it as a teen all the time. I couldn't keep them straight. But the other thing is, when you make an oath, if you have the self-discipline to guard your mouth, you're going to be that much better off. And before you speak, you have the discipline to think, do I have the ability and the means to actually keep this promise I'm making? And do I have the perseverance to actually keep this even if things go as I don't expect? And then you say, I'm going to do this. And you follow through it every time. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's not the slip of the tongue. It's having the discipline in your heart before. How can I have that discipline? Get a relationship with the Lord. Number uh, 38 or verse 38. You have heard of it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's talking about retribution. Retribution. And, and so is the next one where it's down to 43. Ye have heard it said, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But then it comes down there, how do I do that? And he tells me, wow, I've got to love my enemies. I've got to bless them that curse me. I've got to do good to them that hate me. I've got to pray for them which despisedly use, use me and persecute me. How do you do that? It's pretty hard. It's pretty hard being nice to the people that are being mean to you, isn't it? You know what? It takes that heart. We, let, we get that attitude beforehand. So with that being said, let's try to go forward now. I want to know how, how can I get this soil called my soul and my heart and my mind, how do I prepare it to start thinking in a way so I cut off sin before it festers there. If it doesn't fester there, it won't go to my hands and my eyes and my speech. So I want to get it right from the beginning, but how do I do that? Well, let's go look at a couple examples. Okay, the first example I would like to go to is in, um, this is uh, David, and this is in, uh, uh, we can find this in, uh, see, I got it here somewhere. Let's get this. Let's see, right here. Here it is, 2 Samuel 11. All right, this is the story where, where David um, committed adultery. Let's, let, let's look at this, okay? This is 2 Samuel 11. And what happened was, is, is, is David stayed home and his army was out in the battle and he stayed home and he was in the castle and he was on the rooftop. Notice what it says. And it came to pass in an even time 
that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. From the roof, he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. That's our problem. Right? He saw a woman. Okay? And it said she was beautiful to look upon. It wasn't like, whoa, whoa, I better turn away. No, he saw. And admire turned into desire. He let it fester. Amen? And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. If, if, if he had a heart close to the Lord, he lived there. I, I don't know if that was something he did often, but I have a feeling he's a smart guy and he knew that time of night ladies were taking baths. It's not a good time to take a stroll. Amen? Amen. And if you're living a life close to the Lord, you're going to cut it off long before there so you don't get in a position where you have to bounce your eyes. Amen? Brother Dolph, that sounds like a bunch of rules. You know what I'm asking David to do? I'm asking him to drive with his body on the right side of the road. Right? And it's going to be awkward. For, I like taking even strolls. That's the cool of the evening. Take a morning stroll. Okay? Or take one on the ground level. Don't do it up there so you can see the people taking over the walls of their houses when they're taking their baths. Amen? Here it is. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman. It's festering. Has he committed adultery yet? No. Yes, he has, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. Right? He's committed adultery, but he hasn't touched the woman yet. Matter of fact, he doesn't even know her name, but he's already committed adultery. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And this is where he went too far. And he sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. And he finally committed the fornication, but he, or the adultery, but he really committed it before, didn't he? With his eyes and his heart, and he let it fester. Yeah. And this, this, is, this is what I want to share with you. What if David had surrounded him with good, godly servants. A servant that was so bold to say, King, you're making a mistake here. I'm not getting her for you. I always like this one. What would happen? If he says, go get her for me. And the guy comes back with one of his wives. <laughs> right? That's a true friend, isn't it? I'm asking you to do is you talk to God, you can get a communication going with God, you're reading his word, you're finding out his will, you're sharing your heart to him, you got that communication going forward. You spend time around people that have godly affections, so it rubs off you, so when you have that indiscretion, they can intercede and help you out. It's going to get very, very early. And I hope it doesn't sound like a bunch of rules. It's just changing some habits. Amen? Okay. So, there it is. And this verse 5 always, I mean, verse 4, notice what it says. 
And David sent messengers and took her and came to her and lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned into her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am a child. And then it really gets out of hand because not only does he let commit the sin, but there's no repentance there. And now there's the cover-up. And the cover-up leads to lying and deception and finally murder. So it just festers and festers and festers. Okay? Let's go look at another example. Let's look at a good example this time. Okay, let's, let's look at the ones about retribution. This is about King Saul. King Saul. Now normally, most of Saul's life, he was a stinker. But the first couple chapters of his life, he was a very righteous man. Okay? So God called him and he picked him to be the king. Okay? And Samuel anointed him and he became king. And the spirit came upon him and anointed him again. And he was able to prophesy. And he did some pretty amazing thing. And then Samuel announced that God had picked him the king. And the people said, God saved the king. So the people accepted him. And there was a couple holdouts. There was a couple people that didn't like Saul to be their king. Notice what it says here in 1 Samuel 10. Let me read verse 26. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. See, those are those men that we're talking about. Surround yourself with godly men. But there was another set of men. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? They despised him and brought him no presence, but he, this is Saul, held his peace. I'm saying, go King Saul, go King Saul, right? If only he couldn't have lived all 40 years of his reign that way. But it was just a couple short years and then he started letting the flesh get a long way with him. Okay, so let's keep on going. Now I'm in chapter 11 and there's this battle. So let's, 1 Samuel 11, 11. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the host in the morning a watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. Verse 12. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, there shall not a man be put to death this day for the Lord, for today the Lord thy, the God, the Lord hath brought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel and the people, come and let us go to Gibeah and renew the kingdom there. You know what King Saul's doing? He is passing on the retribution. You know, that's what three of the but I says are. You know, I looked in the New Testament. I don't see any rights. We like to claim our rights. It's my right. I don't see any rights. I see liberties. But I also see where you've got to pass on liberties to benefit somebody else. What kind of right is that? It's not a right if I've got to give it up. But that's what Jesus is teaching. And that's exactly Saul did. Why did he do that? Because he's walking humbly with the Lord this time. Something happened to Saul where that wasn't the case anymore. He wasn't walking with God anymore. The godly people around him, he was, they got him angry. 
Remember, Samuel had to flee from him because he said, this guy's going to kill me. So it, it's more than a set of rules. It's more than a set of actions that we get it beforehand. So we want to get it before it festers in our heart, in our mind. Because that from there, it goes to our actions. But we want to get earlier. Okay, Let's go over one more. And then I want to give you some things to think about. Next time, we, now we're going to have a guest speaker next weekend. But the weekend after that, sometime after that, I really want to talk to you about principles, laws, and habits. I think that's really, really important. We tend to think laws are not good. Laws are restrictive. They cramp our style. Well, all God's laws are good for us. And sometimes they're uncomfortable and we got to get used to driving on the right side of the road versus the left side of the road. You understand all that? We got to make those adjustments. And, and it, <coughs> but ultimately it's good. So if I'm driving a postal truck, I better learn that law or you know what? I'm going to get in a wreck. I don't want to get in a wreck. Okay? So let's look at this one in Genesis 4. Let's look at the lie. This is the one concerning the oath. And again, I want to talk about festering. When Cain finally lies, notice how much water's gone under the bridge before he tells the lie. Got it? This is Genesis 4. I'm starting in verse 2. This is Adam and Eve. And she bare his brother Abel. Cain was oldest, Abel was second. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect, and Cain was wroth. Okay, two brothers. They come to God, they make an offering. The farmer brings his produce. The shepherd brings his sheep. And God says, I'm pleased with this offering, and I'm not pleased with that offering. And Cain gets mad. He hasn't lied yet. He got mad. You know what? It's that heart, right? So, so what, have you ever prayed for something from God? And he dastardly said no. Or he said, not yet. Have you gotten mad at God? Yeah, we have, huh? Now you're saying no. I'm saying, you're lying. <laughs> <laughs> at least once. <clears throat> it's festering there. Not, not, God. Okay, what was wrong? Is it because you require blood? Or was it because it wasn't my best produce? I gave you some of the rotten stuff? Or was it because my heart wasn't right? Or was I was trying to do it in a way where my pile was bigger than my brother's pile? Lord, what about my offering? That's the humble way to go. Amen? But he didn't do any of those things. He just got mad. Okay? And his countenance fell. <laughs> 
and his countenance fell. Josiah and Bethany, have you ever wondered how mom and dad can tell when you're telling a fib? Your countenance. You can look at the body language, you look at the eyes. It comes with being a parent, right? Okay. Verse six, and the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Verse eight, and Cain talked with his brother, as Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. That anger was never quenched. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is thy Abel thy brother? And he says, I don't know. There's the lie. Notice how far down the long the lie was. The anger, he, he was guilty of the murder before he killed him. And then he killed him. And then he lied to cover it up. Matter of fact, it's interesting. When, when you look at the first four commandments, those are the ones that we attribute to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, right? right, right. And the last six is we attribute to loving thy neighbor with all thy soul, heart, mind, soul, right? You might. I know of no way of just breaking one commandment. I don't know how you can steal without first coveting. Right? I don't know how you can commit adultery without first coveting. Amen? I, know, I don't know how you can kill without first hating or having anger. The sins in the heart always precede the one of the actions, right? I don't know how you can covet without committing adultery. And isn't using my Lord's name in vain the same as bearing false witness? What comes out of your mouth? There's so many things there. And when I don't do the Sabbath, aren't I really stealing from God? It's like a bowl of spaghetti. They're all tied together with the hard ones and the actual actions. So here, there we are. All right, so how does this work? Okay. Here's the message for today, and, and I'm not giving you that many solutions. I'm just dangling out. It's like that television show to be continued, right? But, but, but I'm just, I, I, we got to recognize the problems there. So we want to cut off sin before it travels from the heart and mind to the hands and feet, but it's better if we can cut it off before it plants in our hearts and minds. That's our goal. How do we do that? Well, I got good news for you. I'm going to give you two passages of scripture. The first one is in Colossians 1. The gospel helps. The gospel helps get you to the place where that's true. Verse 3. We give thanks to God. This is Paul talking to these members of this church at Colossae. To the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have to all saints. In other words, you're bearing some fruit. You're bearing the fruit of faith and you're bearing the fruit of love or charity. And as we're watching you and we're just thanking God for your conversions. 
For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Ye heard the gospel, which is come unto you as it in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit. What happens when you embrace that gospel, it's kind of like getting a regular car and then all of a sudden getting a mail truck. Right? You've got a new vehicle. You've got a new framework. You've got a new outline to process all the world. And that's what the gospel does. And you realize all of a sudden it's not what I did. It's what he did for me. And I'm not doing it to get something. I'm doing it to say thank you for what he gave me. And when you do that, it's going to feel so awkward because everything in your being wants to go on automatic pilot and drive on the left side of the road and earn it. And we've got to change our habits, but we're not doing it to earn it. We're changing our habits because we want to say thank you and we want to dwell with him. It, it, it's, 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 it's almost like there's this little switch and you just got to just move it a little bit. But it's funny when you are drawing two lines and you miss by one degrees, it doesn't miss by much here, but when you go out about 400 feet, one degree, you're missing by a mile. That's, that's what it is. Let me go on the rest, there's some more in here. Let me jump down. Paul's doing some more praying. Verse nine. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Boy. Don't you wish you had a pastor like Paul praying for you like that? I need to crank it up. But look, look how he prays. And desire that ye might be filled with knowledge of, of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of God unto all pleasing and being fruitful in every good work. There's that fruit again. We want to be bearing fruit. Now we do the actions and with the actions come the fruit bearing. Amen? We don't do the actions to bear fruit. They're synonymous with one another. And look what happens. Increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, and to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Those sound like two pretty good benefits. Strengthened with all might and joy. I want some joy. And the joy comes from driving on the right-hand side of the car on the road when you're in a mail truck. And it's hard. Okay, got one more passage for today. So we're going to try to differentiate between rules and principles and habits. 2 Corinthians 5. It's the same motive. It's the gospel. It's Jesus' price that he paid on the cross for you. And then he came back three days and three nights after he died and he risen, risen from the dead. That's our hope. For love of Christ constraineth us. No, love is supposed to make us free. But the love of God constrains us. Constrains us. When I'm in the love of God, I got to drive on the right side of the road. I hope I'm not wearing that metaphor out, but, but, but you're getting it, right? It doesn't come natural to us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all. And they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 
So my life is not about obeying rules to get. It's about obeying rules because what I've been given. That sounds constraining. No, disobedience is constraining. Because with the compliance or being constrained with him comes the strength and the joy. That's where it comes. It's a fine line. And as I preach this, I'm thinking of, you know, Bethany and Josiah, who's in, what, what are you going in eighth and tenth grade now? Eighth and tenth grade. It, it's a concept that's so hard for me to understand. What, when, I was, when I was that age, even, even ten years past that, of, of getting, isn't religion all about keeping commandments? Well, God gives commandments, and there's some commandments that we are supposed to keep, but it's the reason why we do it. And we try to cut it off as early as possible. And the best way to do keeping commandments is to do it for the relationship, not for the, to avoid the pain or to get the prize. Mm-hmm.